Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back. This is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. I'm so excited for this next guest. I'm always thrilled whenever we can sucker this man into being on our show. There's this common belief, you guys know, that we live in brand new times where, where people are so reactionary. People are so easy to offend today. We, we've heard Seinfeld and Chris Rock both say they can't play colleges anymore because young people are too PC. I didn't know Seinfeld and Chris Rock were even still playing colleges in this century. Imagine my surprise on that one. And then there's our right-wing friends who, in many cases, have gone crazy trying to cancel anything. It's very easy to forget that current events are seldom current, and our national religion has always been umbrage. Both the left and the right have long histories of being deeply offended over entertainment and they say you can't joke about anything anymore, but our next guest has written an excellent and deeply entertaining new book about how contemporary TV, film, music, and theater has more freedom of expression than ever. If you're a fan of comedy, you already know the name Kliss Nesteroff. He's been called the premier popular historian of comedy by the New York Times. His previous books include The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, as well as We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, the unheralded story of Native Americans and comedy. He's been praised by every comedian you have ever loved, and his new book is called Outrageous, a history of showbiz and the culture wars, an expansive history of show business and all the battles over our culture that have divided us often by design through the decades. Steve Martin has said outrageous as required reading an essential book on the social history of the United States with laughs. What a great pleasure to welcome back Cliff Nesteroff to Sirius XM. Yes, it's Cliff yes. Nesteroff. Cliff Nesteroff, how are you? Very well. That was quite an introduction. Well, Thank there's you. so much in this book, and it would have worked just fine if you had made this a compendium of famous instances where pop culture offended people. Mm -hmm. But you go into the nature of how that's used and why it's used in this book. And it's so funny because I was, I was trying to explain to my child how, you know, it was only 30 years ago that Bart Simpson 
was terrorizing right. parents, and right. you could be thrown out of school for having Bart Simpson's face on a T-shirt. Yes, in the nineties. Yes, in this yes. country. Yes, even more recently. How quickly if we forget? Janet Jackson's nipple was two thousand and four. That's right. Remember the hysteria that greeted half a second glimpse of half a nipple that none of us would have noticed oh, had it yeah. not been turned into a giant hysteria. Uh, I remember the woman who caught all that rage and not the white guy who actually did it. But yes, I do remember well, quite well. that was not a egalitarian outrage. That was an orchestrated outrage. The oh, yeah. guy who really um, helped organize the protest against the Janet Jackson nipple thing was a guy named Brent Bazell III. That's right. His father was a guy named Brent Bazell Jr. Brent Bazell Jr. was a pro-censorship advocate for decades. He had been a speechwriter. This is how far back this lineage goes. He had been a speechwriter for Joseph McCarthy in the early 1950s. He ghostwrote Conscience of a Conservative That's for right. Barry Goldwater in 1964. He went after Norman Lear for All in the Family and Maud in the early 1970s. And he was uh, associated with the lobbyist who went after George Carlin in the famous Pacifica radio case, which again sometimes is misattributed as being an angry parent heard it on the radio That's and right. complained about George Carlin. That's right. This guy was actually by design an evangelical lobbyist who had gone after Norman Lear and others prior to George Carlin. So this guy, Brent Bazell Jr., had been sort of a pro-censorship dude back in the 70s. His son, Brent Bazell III, continued the family tradition and uh, and went after, really created that whole Janet Jackson controversy it was his lobbying that resulted in a half million dollar fine lodged by the FCC against CBS. And then that guy's son was arrested mm -hmm. for storming the Capitol on beautiful. January So 6th. beautiful. So it's decade after decade it's after the circle decade. of grift. Yeah, isn't that incredible? But here's the interesting thing, Cliff. Um, Brent Bazell III, uh, as far as I understand, my understanding of the man, is that he is not, in fact, offended by women's nipples, even Janet Jackson. That this was actually done with something more sinister in mind than just a concerned citizen being offended. And that's what I love about the book, because I want to go through some of the stories because sure. they're just amazing. But for almost every one, you keep documenting how powerful interests, political interests, have always tried to exploit the arts and exploit panic over the arts using censorship, using harassment, using outright propaganda. Just in telling my little kid about, you know, President Bush Sr. going after the Simpsons while his vice President Quayle was going after Murphy Brown. And mm -hmm. in both cases, it wasn't because they were actually offended by anything. It's because the umbrage is a powerful tool for corralling masses. Yeah, it's the old us versus them mentality. They're corrupt. They're immoral. We're not. We'll save you. Vote for us. Mm -hmm. Essentially. And, and you have a great piece in the LA Times this week called How the Culture War Demonized Comedy and Convinced America We're More Polarized Than Ever. Before we even get into the fun uh, culture war stuff. Can I ask you about Paul Weyrich, who's someone yeah. who I think people have heard a little bit about in our generation, um, but we don't really talk about the John Birch Society. Yeah, the John Birch Society in the 60s, as some people will remember, was widely derided as a far-right, lunatic, conspiracy-minded organization. I know the John Birch Society because Mad Magazine used to ridicule it all the time. George Carlin made fun of it. Bob Dylan made it, uh, recorded a song called The Talk in John Birch Society The, the famous Ed Sullivan show where Bob Dylan went to do his first appearance on Ed Sullivan and Ed would not let him play his, Actually, his song. Actually, Ed Sullivan let him and right. CBS, CBS overrode him. You're right. Which, according to the producers of CBS, of, um, the producers of the Ed Sullivan show never happened because Ed Sullivan was very sort of sanctimonious. He did censor the acts himself. 
he had Bob Dylan play that song for him ahead of time. He mm-hmm. said, I see no problem with it. Go ahead. It's a hilarious song. And CBS said, no, you're not allowed to. They were afraid of the John Birch Society because they did um, have letter writing pressure, boycott campaigns throughout their history. They um, uh, campaigned against Bob Newhart. They said That's his right. parodies of American history were un-American, immoral, mm-hmm. and unethical. They campaigned against uh, uh, several different people in comedy, but most significantly, their most pressing campaign, the John Birch Society in the late 50s and all throughout the 1960s, was against the civil rights movement Correct. and Dr. Martin Luther King. They said Martin Luther King was uh, uh, part of a Soviet conspiracy and that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would lead to tyranny. Now, at the time, that was all derided as sort of uh, ridiculous and preposterous, and some people did subscribe to that theory, but it was largely dismissed as uh, a racist sort of lunatic conceit. This guy, Paul Weyrich, who was going through uh, college at the time, at the age of 18, 19, 20, 21, he became a lecturer on the John Birch Society speaking circuit. They called it the American Opinion Speakers Bureau. American mm-hmm. Opinion was the name of their newsletter, the John Birch Society. And he would say things like that. He would say, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the road to tyranny. This is a, a conspiracy that was conceived in communist Russia in the 1920s, on and on and on. But because the John Birch Society was so heavily ridiculed in popular culture, it sort of stigmatized anybody that was associated with it. So, Sort of it, like the Tea Party needing a new name after a few years? Yeah. So eventually, Paul Weyrich, his political philosophy did not change. Correct. But he distanced himself from the John Birch Society. By the early 1970s, public opinion had turned against the Vietnam War. Most people were in favor now of the gains of the civil rights movement. So the early 70s were a more uh, accepting time for some of those social protest movements and what they achieved. So Paul Weyrich and the John Birch Society were no longer taken seriously. So what Paul Weyrich did was he took a step back and eventually, 1973, he forms a new organization, which you still hear about today, called the Heritage Foundation, with an influx of cash from the Coors Beer Empire Mm -hmm. and the Scaife Foundation, Richard Mellon Scaife, and you still hear this name as well, the Sarah Scaife Foundation, which was his mother. They are, to this day, among the largest bankrollers of far-right media, far-right campaigns, think tanks, and they still fund the Heritage Foundation, as does the Charles Koch Foundation. And and Koch's father was one of the founders of the original John Birch Society. And the Bradley Foundation. The Bradley Foundation, they started purchasing advertising back in the late 50s in the American Opinion John Birch Society newsletter. So there's all these connections that are still not only still present today, but they're more powerful today because they're wealthier today. They have more money to spend on propaganda today. And they can sell it and they get their power, of course, by fighting for causes that help non-millionaires, right? No, they don't do that. <laughs> they have boogeymen and they demonize others right. and external threats and, and talk about freedom and liberty a lot. They use the word freedom and liberty a lot, ironically, in... Uh, in arguing to strip people of their freedoms and liberties, you know. It does seem like our friends on the right have done a bit of a 180, though, when it comes to these umbrage politics, because for decades and decades, of course, it was, you know, anything remotely offensive, anything vulgar, anything sexual, 
now uh, people on the right are saying, oh, no, no, it's the liberals who are the ones who are offended yes. all well, the time. Well, it's a great it's way to demonize liberals exactly. is to say, oh, they're going to take your comedy away. They're going to take your jokes away. The people who, who, who got people canceled for comedians saying fuck are now getting people canceled because comedians can't say fuck 20 anymore. 20 years ago was they're going to take your guns. They're going to take your guns away. Now it's, it. they're going to take your comedians. They're going to take your jokes away. And there are new taboos. There are taboos on slurs today that a lot of people may have not realized or considered slurs in the 1990s, That's certainly right. in stand-up. But just because there's taboo on, let's say, eight slurs... That's it. That's a far stretch from oh, saying you can't joke about you're anything You're silencing anymore. the First Amendment by not saying hurtful racist slurs anymore. The irony is... I that feel like the, Elon Musk is channeling this conversation right now, right? <laughs> I mean, that's it. They've hijacked the phrase freedom of speech. In 2012, that's really the moment where the definition of freedom of speech goes haywire. When Citizens United ruled, when that case ruled that unlimited corporate campaign contributions constitute freedom of speech, <laughs> that's when the definitions went off the rails. And now you could uh, uh, correlate anti-bigotry as censorship, protest of bigotry as censorship, That's it. and the espousing of bigotry as free speech, when in reality, when there's a bigoted speaker on a college campus, or let's say at least a speaker who's perceived as bigoted on a college campus, the right and the think tanks and their sort of network of media will frame it as, that's free speech. But if you object- as an anti-racist or an anti-bigot, you're not exercising your Oh, you're trying to speech. silence free you're speech. You're a censor, when in reality it's freedom of expression versus freedom of expression. And if you're going to choose a side on of freedom of expression, you're going to side with the person that's espousing bigotry, or you're going to side with the person who's espousing anti-bigotry. I don't know, Cliff. The you woke know? thing was okay at first, but it's gone too far. <laughs> the woke thing's gone too far, Cliff. <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah. And, and you know, our culture has been the battlefield of all of this. And like so many soldiers, a lot of people have been suckered by those in power into fighting for a cause that doesn't actually help them. Bill Maher is a good example of somebody who is exposed to the same talking point over and over and over. He, he believes he's smart, but I feel like he's easily manipulated these days, as are a lot of people Bill of his Mars generation. Easy. See, I think Bill's, uh, I th uh, this is my unpopular take. I've, I've known him for many years. I think that Bill, um, when there's a Democrat in office, he's a contrarian. And when there's a Republican office, he's a liberal. And that's always been his game. Well, I don't think it has to do with Republicans and Democrats. I think it has to do with the repetition of things on social media that say this generation is shit. Millennials right. are yeah, shit. Fair. My generation was liberal. Your generation is not. And it's sort of like an old guy in 1964 yelling about the Beatles saying it isn't music. You know, it sounds completely out of touch to me, but I understand why somebody might believe that because they're being told that over and over and over and over again, all day, every day on social media, talk, radio, cable news, college campuses, things, free speech is under attack, things are out of control. But if you look at the body of evidence and people like Bill Maher should know better, having been a stand-up comedian for so long, people have objected yep. for generations. And in the old days, they wrote letters to the editor, not social media. In those days, 
there was the word editor. Yes. So if somebody wrote a complaint, <laughs> if a hundred people wrote a complaint, they'd publish maybe one or two. Now there's no editor. A hundred complaints are Correct. published instantaneously online. It gives us the illusion that people are more sensitive, that yes. people can't take a joke, that people are more easily offended, when in reality, it's probably the same ratio. There's just no filter, and we're seeing all of the poorly spelled, unhinged screaming comments. So I understand why somebody might uh, believe, oh, there's a crisis, you can't say anything anymore. It does create that illusion, but that is all it is, is an illusion. There are some new taboos, but far more have been shattered in recent history. As you mentioned, The Simpsons was controversial. Beavis and Butthead was controversial. South Park was controversial. Even the Teletubbies were part of a sure. gay conspiracy. Sure. You know, Janet Jackson was controversial. When I watch streaming shows today, there's a show that Pete Davidson stars in on Peacock. I don't know if you've seen it. Joe Pesci's in it. Mm-hmm. Not to disgust your listening audience, but the very first scene of the very first episode shows Pete Davidson jerking off and he accidentally ejaculates on his own mother. Yes. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about this. If this was 2004, it would be all you hear about. Yeah. It wouldn't even be made, you know. Yeah. But compare that to the Janet Jackson nipple controversy 20 years ago, and there's no controversy over that sequence whatsoever. It demonstrates that there's more freedom of expression on streaming services than there ever was on network television. There's more freedom of expression on satellite radio and podcasts than there ever was on That's AM right. and FM radio. And people need to understand that. I think it's easier to manipulate young people who weren't there to experience that. They're a good target for that propaganda of, ooh, the liberal's going to take your jokes away. You can't say anything That's anymore. Right. They're the new censors. The other point I want to make Nobody has a lock on censorship. You know, it's not a left th left wing thing or a right wing thing. Both exist concurrently at all times throughout history. Traditionally, when the left tries to censor people or suppress people, and nobody ever admits that it's censorship. Um, Give me an example. Well, generally, uh, I mean, blackface, mm -hmm. there was a big mm -hmm. controversy over the remaining remnants of blackface in the mm -hmm. early 60s during the civil rights movement. And the Mummer's Day Parade in Philadelphia still featured people in blackface. And they made an announcement in 64, 65, you know, out of respect for the civil rights movement. This time has passed. We're going to continue the Mummer's Day Parade, but no more blackface. There was an editorial in a Utah newspaper that said, the civil rights movement has gone too far. What does blackface <laughs> have to do with civil rights? So generally, the left tries to suppress that which is bigoted or that which they perceive as bigotry. Maybe it's bigoted. Maybe it's not. The opposite is true of the right. Yes. They want to censor history books that are anti-racist or anti-slavery. Many of the textbook controversies throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s leading up to this moment today were protest movements that wanted mentions of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. removed from textbooks. There was a controversy uh, with uh, with the Gablers, who are famous textbook mm -hmm. censors from Texas. They wanted the lyrics to We Shall Overcome removed from a history textbook. They said it was communist propaganda. Yeah. So you see it again today in places like Florida, the controversy over the 1619 Project. Always. It's always communism. Theory, Anything anti-racism is always communism. Yeah, so that 
is sort of, those aren't the only examples, but frequently people on the left want to suppress that which they consider bigoted. Is it censorship? Yes. Is it understandable? Yes. And people on the right frequently want to censor that which is considered anti-bigotry, although they'll frame it in a different way. They'll and say, racy. It's our friends on the right. Well, they'll say it's a communist the conspiracy. Stuff. They'll say the children are being recruited by there's sex. demons. People might be enjoying sex somehow. That, yeah. that's, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, there's other examples and there's other reasons somebody might censor. It might be the government might want to censor something that is uh, critical of their foreign policy or domestic policy. People might want to censor things because it contradicts their religious beliefs. You know, there's lots of All the time. different examples. But the left-wing uh, censorship generally falls into the realm of we consider this bigotry and we'd like it removed. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. My guest is the great Cliff Nesteroff, the greatest uh, historian of comedy we have right now in his essential new book. And I'm telling you something, man, this new book makes a fantastic gift. It is called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. Over the weekend, I was actually listening to Mae West because that's what I do. Um, And I was listening to her do uh, the song, A Guy What Takes His Time. And I just thought, my God, this is exactly what Bessie Smith was doing, (laughs) what Ma Rainey was doing. This is filthy, drenched in innuendo. And it was never a problem until the wrong person heard it. Mm. You talk about the Pete Davidson show on Peacock and the opening scene. Shocking, yes. But isn't, isn't it shocking that no one's made a fuss about it yet just yeah. because no one on the right has been offended by it yet no one's watched it got offended and no politician or media figure or clergy figure have reasoned out a way to make a buck off the umbrage i can guarantee you if someone on the right could find a way to monetize offense at that opening scene mm-hmm. in the show we'd, we'd hear it all the time right mm-hmm. i mean it's part of a larger engine you go through everything in this book from obviously elvis presley and the beatles and chubby checker to python and, and welcome back cotter and beavis and butthead but it seems like it seems like the 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 offense never exists on its own there's got to be an opportunistic element of it for the media mm-hmm. to pick it up and run with the ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Beavis and Butthead example is really interesting. I don't know if you remember, but a, a, the, a woman's house burned down. That's said, right. Kids saw Beavis and Butthead playing with matches and it's MTV's fault. Right. Because uh, uh, Beavis had a catchphrase on the show, fire, fire, fire. And um, we had to sit through congressional hearings about this, hearing senators who couldn't pronounce the name 
of the show? M- MTV was pressured uh, 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 to remove the show, and they didn't, but they did remove the ele- some of the episodes that featured uh, uh, Beavis playing with fire. And the kid, the, now the fire did occur, and this person's trailer did burn down, and the daughter, the the child's sister, did tragically die in this fire. Um, so this little boy is now a grown ass man, and he was asked about it just a couple of years ago. He goes, "We didn't have cable. None of us ever saw Beavis and Butthead. My mother had a drug problem." And she was afraid that she was going to be blamed for this fire. So she made up this excuse. And the fire chief believed it and ran with it. And it resulted in this hysteria about Beavis and Butthead. When in reality, it was a freak accident of which, you know, the, 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 the child was mortified and the mother was mortified. It was a tragedy. But it had absolutely nothing to do with the show. But it served a larger narrative. Yeah. So they yeah. ran with it. Yeah. yeah. You know, we hear these stories about how when Lucille Ball got pregnant... Mm-hmm. Uh, folks flipped out and wrote to sponsors nonstop and wrote to networks. It's really hard to try to imagine what that was like. It's so much fun to watch clips on YouTube and read comment sections where people say, ah, the good old days, clean comedy. Yeah. Nobody complained in those days. When or- they showed that Lucy and Ricky shared the same bed, they never showed them in it, just that they had one mm-hmm. bed. It was greeted as an affront to all that is Christian. They, they had hired priests and rabbis to consult to make sure it was tasteful the storyline of, of Lucille Ball being pregnant. The whole married reason, couple having a baby. The whole reason they had the storyline is because Lucille Ball was pregnant in real life and there was a lot of money riding on this hit show. They couldn't stop production just because she was physically expanding. So they came up with a plot line that correlated with real life. <laughs> Which but, was just a married couple gets pregnant to have a child. It's, but the word pregnant was taboo on television at the time. You could not say pregnant. You could say expecting. Or the joke was that Desi Arnaz said specting instead of expecting. Um, so they hired priests and rabbis to consult. I don't know what they said, but to keep it tasteful, apparently. And there were letters written to the editor of the early TV guide who said, the priests and rabbis who consulted must have been asleep at the wheel. We found it in very bad taste and disgusting. So there were many people that were livid at the very mention of childbirth on a TV show. They didn't show it. They didn't even say the word pregnant, yeah, but just I, the implication that maybe they had had sexual intercourse at one point was enough to it, make right? people like, live it. I hate to ask this, Cliff. I hate to be the dumb guy because I've had relatives that probably were writing those letters back in the day. But mm-hmm. what in your research was the nature of the offense? Well, one of the things- Just thing, the fact that this means this woman, this married woman did the, have intercourse. One of the issues was that 1950, 51, 52, 53, 54, Places like the Bible Belt and even the Northern Bible Belt, Ohio and Indiana, people were seeing television for the very first time. Mm. So they were seeing things that they had kept out of their homes all this time. There was an anti-Semitic element sometimes. People would write and complain, how come we're getting so many New York comedians? There's too much (laughs) Lower East Side comedy (laughs) on TV. (laughs) When Milton Berle did a Christmas episode, there were all these... Uh, anti-Semitic letters written saying, this interloper, how dare he ridicule such a sacred occasion? And it was the same with the I Love Lucy controversy. It was just, we don't mention sex. People complained when there was an episode of Lassie in which she had a litter of puppies. They really did, right? Yeah, they said this is disgusting. A couple years later, but but a a dog giving birth to puppies. Somebody wrote a letter saying, if I wanted my kids to uh, see this kind of filth, I'd take them to a burlesque show. About Lassie. I mean, listen, I, I love a good C-section and a middle of a burlesque show, but yes. I don't really, I, 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 
it's just so hard to fathom. I mean, we are so a couple of generations insulated from this sort of Calvinistic But the thinking. type of reaction, even though it was so Calvinist in nature, such a innocuous, family-friendly thing being complained about, the nature of the complaints is the same as today. Think of the children. The always, children. Always we the have children. to protect the children. Drag queens are recruiting your children. Anita Bryant in the late 70s. Homosexuals are recruiting your children in 1954. White children can't be mixing and with black children. children. And a lot of the uh, anti-integration elements in the 1950s became the evangelical movement <laughs> later. Yep. So a lot of the nature of the complaints about I Love Lucy, Lassie, these innocuous programs in the early 50s had, like you say, this sort of Calvinistic background and evangelical influence. But the fact that TV was entering people's homes who had never had it before really sort of amplified the right. idea that we're under attack. And it's people from New York and Chicago and Hollywood who are attacking us, influencing our kids in our homes here in Ohio or Indiana or South Carolina. Yeah. We're up to this point. We had some sort of sanctimony. We had some sort of uh, control over what was piped into our homes. But not really, oh. because the same complaints <laughs> existed when radio went national right. in the late 1920s and throughout the 1930s. People were complaining about jazz music. They called Always. Jungle music, savage music that was going to um, destable people's mentalities with this jungle beat that was going to uh, bolster their sex drives. Oh, swing and make music them maniacs. Was, was the end of civilization, Crooning too. Crooning yeah. was considered lurid. Bing Crosby, Russ Columbo. Oh, stay alive, Rudy Grandma. Valley. You're going to love gangster rap. Stay alive. And Grandma. you mentioned Mae West. In 1937, she appeared on the Edgar Bergen Charlie McCarthy Hour, which at the time was called the Chase and Sanborn Hour. In those days, the names of the shows were the names of the sponsors. Of course. So Chase and Sanborn Coffee sponsored them. Mae West was a guest, and they did an Adam and Eve sketch. And for people that don't remember, uh, Edgar Bergen is Candace Bergen's father, yes. and he was a ventriloquist on the radio, which everybody thought was ridiculous. Mm. But it was a well-written show, so it succeeded. Charlie McCarthy was a ventriloquist dummy character. So they did a, a Garden of Eden sketch, Mae West and Charlie McCarthy. And he's a dummy. He's made of wood. And he goes, oh, Mae West, you're, you're so lovely. And Mae West in her sultry, seductive, sexual voice, and she was already famous for that from the movies, goes, well, uh, why don't you come over and play in my woodpile? <laughs> this was considered completely pornographic. On paper, according to Edgar Bergen in the script, when they wrote it, it didn't seem very smutty. But when she delivered it, come up and play around in my woodpile, it sounded so smutty. There was instantaneous outrage. The switchboards lit up. There was a campaign against Chase and Sanborn Coffee, and thousands and thousands and thousands of letters were received. It was the largest mm. protest in radio history and comedy history up to that point. As a result, Mae West was not just banned from network radio. They banned the mention of her name for a decade. Yeah on network radio as a result. And they published many, many letters in Variety, in the Billboard, in newspapers, in church magazines. And it was this incredible uproar. And the, the nature of the complaint, again, was similar to the complaint against I Love Lucy when she was on television, against All in the Family when it was on yep. television, the Anita Bryant campaign. A lot of it was, my children heard this, my children have been corrupted. How dare these people from Hollywood, how dare these people from New York corrupt our children's minds with their immoral, dirty thoughts. Wow, we've come so far. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Progress After Dark. Before we wrap, I have this so Cliff, I didn't get to half my questions here. There's so much in this book. But let me let me go into a little bit murkier territory. Comedians regard Will Rogers as uh, a prophet. I mean, before there was Lenny Bruce, you know, before uh, mm. uh, there was George Carlin. And um, Will Rogers, by many accounts, on many, many areas, was incredibly progressive for his time. He, Definitely. he was nailing the problem with trickle-down economics when Hoover was still in mm-hmm. the White House. But you go through some problems he had mm-hmm. with a word that he used before that word was considered problematic. And yeah. um, it was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, this was in my second book. We had a little real estate problem. Well, everybody yeah. knows the name Will Rogers, but doesn't know much about him. Even people who invoke his name, Chris Matthews used to always invoke his name. He'd go, oh, as uh, Will Rogers used to say, I never met a man I didn't like. Used to always say that. Never met a man I didn't like. That's the famous line attributed to Will Rogers. What does it mean? You know, he was considered this great wit, but what does never met a man I, uh, I, I never met a man I didn't like? What is that? How is that witty? I it means don't understand. He's, he's he's a nice guy. He actually, Will Rogers himself, used to sometimes flip it and say, "I never liked a man I didn't meet" because he was so sick of his own catchphrase. Right, right, right. Well, Will Rogers. I mean, there's beaches named after him, hospitals named after him, highways named after him. You know, everything's named after Will Rogers. Who was Will Rogers? Will Rogers was Cherokee. He was Native American. Mm-hmm. That has sort of been whitewashed from his biography. Um, he was a huge star on the stage on Broadway in the Ziegfeld Follies. He was a big star uh, on radio. He was a big star in newspapers, which really what made him famous. He had a syndicated column called Will Rogers Says. That's right. And he was under contract to Fox, the film studio in the early 1930s, the same studio that had Shirley Temple. Extremely, extremely big star in the early 1930s. In 1934, he was appearing on a radio program called the Shell Chateau, sponsored by Shell Gasoline, Shell Oil Company. And he was introducing a Western song called The Last Roundup, and it was like a cowboy song. And Will Rogers, in introducing the song, said, it may sound like a cowboy song to you, but it's really just an old school N-word spiritual to me. Now, he didn't say and hyphen word, right, he right. said the word. He said the word. And people who heard it on the radio were like, wait, excuse me? Even in 1934, you did not say the N-word on national radio. It was already well taboo. And NBC and CBS already had a written charter that said no racial slurs over the radio, along with no swear words and so on and so forth. Yeah. So the song ends, he comes back on, people thought, well, maybe we misheard. He goes, see, doesn't it sound like an N-word spiritual? It sure is just an N-word spiritual to me. He says it three times. 
So again, much like Mae West, the outrage is instantaneous, this time from a different demographic, not from evangelicals, but from uh, black listeners. And so there was a letter writing campaign and several editorials in the black press, the New York Amsterdam News, the Pittsburgh Courier, the major black newspapers of the day said, Will Rogers insulted millions of Americans by using this word. He needs to go back on the air and apologize. And if he doesn't, we're going to boycott all Shell gasoline products. And here's a list of every Shell gas station in America. And we plead you, if you are African-American, to withdraw your patronage from Shell. So Shell, the sponsor, said to Will Rogers, you have to go back on the air next week and apologize because you've really created a a terrible situation for us. It's going to affect our bottom line. You have to go on air and apologize. So Will Rogers, in typical comedy fashion, returns to the Shell Chateau the next week, comes on the air and says, seems a lot of you last week were very oversensitive and misconstrued my intent. A lot of you thought that I was saying something bigoted, but I'm not a bigot. Mm. I've been using the N-word for years and nobody has ever complained. Mm. And Shell said, what are you doing? That's the opposite of what we asked. And again, this guy was considered the liberal for his time. Right, right, right. So he said he'd done nothing wrong. He'd used his N-word his whole life. When he was a child, he had a black pinto horse, which he named the N-word. So he did not see the error of his ways. The boycott campaign was expanded. Uh, Members of the black press and black activists persuaded black movie theaters to pull all Will Rogers movies from their screens. The boycott was on, but this protest movement did not gain any traction in the white press. In fact, beyond variety, it was very barely reported by the white press. It was strictly reported by the black press. They were the ones who were saying, this is wrong, he should not have said the N-word, and we're going to expand this boycott. In those days, African Americans did not have anywhere near the purchasing power as they do today, nor as much of a purchasing power as white Americans. So their considerations were not taken um, as seriously as they would have been if it was a boycott campaign for right, white Americans. Right, this is 30 years before Montgomery. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it didn't gain much traction. Within a year, Will Rogers famously died in a fiery plane crash, and That's this right. entire story was completely forgotten. But you can find the original source materials and original letters to the editor of Complaint and the editorials regarding this situation if you look at newspapers.com or other archival services. It's all there for the taking. But all these decades that we've heard Will Rogers' name invoked Never have you heard this story. Cliff, we've only scratched the surface of the stories you cover in this book. It's wonderful. Before I I let you go, and I want you to come back because I have so much more I want to ask about, but what was it that motivated you to write this book right now? Well, it drives me crazy when people say you can't joke about anything anymore. You can't joke about anything anymore. Even when a bad thing happens, like when somebody storms the stage at the Hollywood Bowl and attacks Dave Chappelle, Howie Mandel, who I like, said, this is the end of comedy. This is the death of comedy. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're a comic. You worked in the same Canadian clubs that I worked in. You should know better. Before the internet existed, I quit stand-up in 2006, so there was no Twitter, there was no comedians on YouTube, the word podcast did not exist yet, and I can think of at least five instances in which I was assaulted as a comedian, and I don't even think of them as assault, I thought of them as horrible gigs, Yeah. Um, but I had a pitcher of beer dumped over my head once in Toronto, another time in Vancouver, two completely different instances, and a guy rushed the stage once and clobbered me, sucker punched me, I mean, it's horrible, unjustifiable, but it did not 
lead to the death of comedy. And it certainly had nothing to do with millennials. It certainly had nothing to do with social media. It certainly had nothing to do with anything other than the fact that we're performing for drunks who are there for any reason other than to watch comedy. So it just doesn't make sense to me when people say there's less freedom of speech today or that it's under attack. Why? Because people are objecting to bigotry? That to me does not seem to be a crisis. That seems to be evolution. And if you compare what was permissible in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s or not permissible, take into account that 1962, Lenny Bruce was arrested for using the word schmuck. That's right. 1972, George Carlin is arrested in Wisconsin for swearing. Mm -hmm. 1974, a lot of people don't know this, Richard Pryor was arrested for disorderly conduct mm -hmm. in West Virginia. The obscenity laws had long since been ruled unconstitutional, so they could no longer bust him for uh, obscene performance, but he was arrested for disorderly conduct because he swore in his stand-up performance. That's right. A lot of people say you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. Blazing Saddles, co-written by Richard Pryor, released in 1974. Six months after it was released, Richard Pryor is arrested yeah. for swearing on stage. So excuse me if I don't fall for this talking point that you cannot joke about anything anymore. It's an insult to the comedians who came before and it's got arrested drope, for what you can do today. And if I could just say, some of the same comics, and we know some of our best friends love them, but the same people saying, oh, you can't say anything edgy anymore. They're the same people who point out you could never put the Jeffersons or Good Times or All in the Family on TV now. I mean, it's it's always been here. So, Cliff, in, in closing, and I, I'm keeping you way too long, but no. I, could, I love this book. We're about to begin uh, an incredible year of a presidential campaign, as well as seven different criminal trials for the reality show entertainer who became president. Oh, I haven't heard of this. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious, over the next year, what are, what are you going to be keeping an eye out? What do you predict are going to be the hot umbrage spots in our society beyond, you know, trans kids who want to play sports? I have no predictions. I'm Canadian. So I, 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 I have this uh, perverse uh, outsider sort of take on it where I feel above it and beyond it and, and wow. not involved in What's it, which like? is, it's great. It's great. It's great. I can All just- All that in healthcare too. Yeah. I, I can just enjoy life a little bit. It's not a very uh, optimistic outlook that I have. You know, I'm promoting a book nobody reads. You know, nobody cares about books in the in the grand scheme of things. You know, most people want to read celebrity memoirs. My second book was with Simon & Schuster. They paid me $85,000 to write the book. It was a three-year contract. So $85,000 divided by three. I'm making yeah. like $20,000 a year off of that book. They said, well, that's all we got in the budget. While I was writing that book, they gave a book deal to Mike Pence for $2.5 million. <laughs> I'm like, is this going to be a great literary work? Is anybody going to buy it after the first month? Which nobody read. So that's sort of the book world. That's sort of what I'm up against. So... I try and stay out of the fray. I'm not a Republican, of course. I'm not a Democrat either. I can't vote in America, so I can't be held responsible but for it. But what do you see people getting getting their panties in a wad about? Everything. It's everything. Absolutely everything. Whatever they're told to get their panties in a bunch about, yeah. they will. Because think about the talking points that people were hysterical over just in previous years. Acorn, acorn, acorn. Fiscal cliff, fiscal cliff, fiscal cliff. Invasion, invasion. The caravan, the caravan. How long does this incitement last? People get riled up 
And then a couple years later, it's something it different. It all goes to the even, island of misfit spears. Even the language, right? So cancel culture replaced the term PC police. PC police return, replaced the term social justice warrior. Social justice warrior replaced the phrase political correctness. Even the language keeps changing and evolving. Mm-hmm. It used but to be bleeding hearts. Right. Again, anyone who's anti-bigotry, you were a bleeding heart, then you were politically correct, then you were a social justice warrior, then maybe you were a snowflake in the middle, and uh, now it's woke. Yeah. 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 So you're going to see more of that. It, the tragedy is that the more people uh, uh, pay attention to social media and only social media, uh-huh. the worse it gets because it has this insidious effect of repetition over and over and over. And it makes even, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, things seem worse and worse and worse all the time. And if the talking point is that the Democrats are villains and you're being told that over and over and over, well, why wouldn't you believe it? You know, I don't hold everybody in contempt that is manipulated because sometimes it's out of your control. Sure. My friend Jay Johnston, who was on Mr. Show with Bob Odenkirk and uh, and David Cross. Terrific performer. Sarah Silverman's show, Bob's Burgers, might be going to jail. It breaks my heart. I've been in touch with him this entire time. I think I'm one of the only people who has. And He was there that day. He was there on January 6th, but he's a victim of manipulation. Like he fell for things. And I know who's responsible in his life for that manipulation. Ashley Babbitt is dead because of Donald Trump's lies. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if and and people want to shit on those people, and I understand that, and a lot of people in in response to Jay Johnson are like, fuck him, let him rot in jail. He's a friend of mine. I don't want him to rot in jail. If somebody is in a cult, who do you blame? Do you blame the cult leader? The cult member. If you have a family member in a cult, you want them out of there. You want them deprogrammed. You're not saying, yeah. fuck them, fuck them. You know, you, that's not the way you think, right. you know. But unfortunately, on social media and in other um, sort of channels, that's how we're conditioned to think. And I think it's um, it's wrong. I think it's right to object to people that are espousing horrible thought, idea, hostility, violence. But at the same time, when there's somebody that you know personally who's involved yeah, in that, yeah. it's heartbreaking to watch. And uh, and I so I sort of have an understanding of how and why people are manipulated, and they're not always responsible for that manipulation. You know, that repetition, that social yeah. media echo chamber, that over and over and over and over and over thing. It does have an effect on the mind, and it can affect a liberal person, mm-hmm. a reactionary person. It can affect anybody and so the propaganda power of social media is the probably the most alarming sort of thing that i foresee in the future because i see it only getting worse you know i was sitting next to somebody on the plane ride over to new york yesterday they were on instagram just scrolling through it for the entire plane ride five and a half hours just being fed whatever was in the feed you know and uh that has an effect Cliff Nesteroff, it is always a great pleasure to have you on the show. Cliff's new book, again, is Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. It makes a fantastic gift because it is that rarest book that is as entertaining as it is informative. I can't wait to see what you do next. Please come back and talk about this book some more. Anytime. Thanks, John. And we'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. So as you well know, temperature records have uh, been crushed in 2023. Heat waves are becoming more intense. Floods and droughts are becoming much more common. Economic Tolls have been felt across the globe and the toll on human life as well. Now, the Conference of the Parties, or COP28, the United Nations Annual Climate Summit, is obviously crucial for accelerating climate action, and it starts this week. But you'll be hearing a lot about it, probably more so this year than in recent years, because this year's president of COP28, Sultan Al-Jabur of the United Arab Emirates, is also the head of the Abu Dhabi national oil company known as ADNOC. This is, I believe, the first time any... Fossil Fuel CEO has also been president of Conference of the Parties. It's kind of strange to see Fossil Fuel Guy also in charge of climate change action. And now as the summit begins, a whistleblower leak shows that the host of COP28, the United Arab Emirates, actually planned to use climate meetings with the other countries to promote deals for their national oil and gas companies. This is a dirty story of greed that our Earth does not have time for. Ben Stockton is a British freelance investigative reporter based in New York City, working for the Center for Climate Reporting. He investigates the tools used by multinational corporations, authoritarian regimes, and wealthy individuals to retain power. You may have read his stuff in The New York Times, The Guardian, or The L.A. Times. His new piece for The Intercept, along with Amy Westervelt, is inside the campaign that put an oil boss in charge of a climate summit. Ben Stockton, it's a pleasure to welcome you to SiriusXM. Hello. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Am I am I setting this up correctly, sir? This I'm trying to make sure I have this right. He's he's overseeing a major expansion of his company's oil and gas output while also being CEO and chair of the UAE's renewable energy company. This is a guy who who's an oil boss and he's the UAE special envoy for climate change at the same time. I guess let me begin with asking, how, how did this controversy begin? Well, it, it kind of begins all the way back in January of this year, which is when 
the UAE chose its COP president and, and it turned to this man, Sultan al-Jabbar, who, who at that time was the UAE's climate envoy. Um, but, but like you described, he is um, a man who wears many different hats, has many different roles within the UAE. Um, and the kind of most controversial one of those is, is his role as CEO of, of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which is, which is known as ABNOC. Um, he is also, like you mentioned, the chairman of Mastar, a UAE state-owned uh, renewable energy company, um, and also a cabinet minister. So he is really this quite fascinating guy and, and a certainly a highly influential person within the UAE. Um, his rise um, up to the kind of upper echelons of, of UAE public life has, has been quite remarkable in the sense that he is not um, one of the um, Emirati royals um, that mm-hmm. tend to dominate those, those very high up positions. Um, uh, but as soon as his his COP28 presidency was announced, um, there was obviously a lot of concern expressed by climate activists and prominent public individuals um, based on this the fact the very simple fact of of Ad, his role at Adnoc and and how that might influence um, the COP28 um, event, which is obviously just about to get underway. I think what is um, really interesting about these um, latest revelations is is really um, a kind of coming to fruition of some of those conflict of interest concerns that, that people raised. Um, so, so what we obtained um, at the Center for Climate Reporting um, was essentially more than 150 pages of internal COP28 documents. And, and these are largely uh, briefings that are prepared for Al Jabba by his team ahead of meetings with with foreign governments. And, and what we saw in those documents was actually supposed plans to to bring up talking points relating to his role uh, at Adnoc and Mastar and actually um, get into some uh, pretty specific details on on business interests um, of those two companies in in the nations that that he was meeting with, um, and so. Once we'd we'd kind of verified the authenticity of the documents, and and we worked alongside uh, reporters from the BBC, and in, in on this story, um, we kind of knew at that point that that this was going to be a, a fairly major um, a major scandal. And it certainly is, and it deserves to be. I I certainly hope it becomes even more of a scandal as more and more people hear about it. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the fossil fuel guy being in charge of the climate summit. We, we we don't have vegetarians in charge of Burger King. We don't let Roman Polanski open up homes for runaway teenage girls. Now, they've been called out already, right? Amnesty International has already labeled this a conflict of interest. And I know former Vice President Gore has uh, said this is a sign the fossil fuel industry has brazenly seized control of the COP process. Yeah, that's right. And I think... Um you know, you know, Al Jabba's record on on climate related issues actually long predates um, his his work both as as um, COP28 president, but also his work as Adnot CEO. So, um, actually going back to kind of the mid 2000s when he first took over as CEO of Mastar, um, th- this has kind of really been quite a long term um, campaign to really build his international standing, and his COP28 presidency seems to be be the fruition of that and that the kind of key question that um both i and my co-reporter on the 
story that we worked on with the intercept that you mentioned um amy vestervelt well yes. one of the kind of key questions that that we were looking to answer in that reporting was was how did this really happen um and and i think what can't be understated is the role um of kind of major pr agencies who have worked That's with Java throughout his career perhaps none more influential uh, than Edelman, who started working with Al Jabba in the mid to late 2000s and actually continues to work on COP28 today. So so that is a a relationship between this now hugely influential guy in the climate sphere and also, uh, uh, you know, the CEO of an oil company and, you know, one of the most, if not the most influential uh, PR agency in the world. Yes, and Edelman is an American PR agency, we should point out as well. This whole thing is like an incredible clusterfuck of PR companies and lobbyists at the same time. I, I'm not surprised by some of this. I mean, it's 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 well known that the fossil fuel industry has been deeply embedded in the COP since they began, and they send tons of lobbyists. I, I understand from it, at one point the COP team was actually working out of the Adnoc headquarters. Literally, the climate people were working out of the fossil fuel industry building. It just it just seems like the overlap is is it's it's really hard for a small mind like mine to to understand this. Now, I know that Al Jabber became very well known because when he became CEO, Mazdar got together with Edelman and began promoting Mazdar City, which was supposed to be the zero carbon city of the future, right? In the deserts of Abu Dhabi. That's right. So um, it, it was, you know, Al, Al Jabba called it a, a kind of blueprint for sustainable living for the future. Um, it, it was intended to be built on roughly six square kilometers of, of scrubland just outside of Abu Dhabi. Um, and, it, and it was really kind of billed as this eco utopia. Uh, and the PR agencies that were working with uh, Mastar and Al Jabba at that time really took that idea and ran with it. And, and you know, Al Jabba, while he was um, CEO of Mastar, testified in front of Congress, um, uh, met uh, George Bush. Uh, you know, he, he has kind of done the rounds with some very influential people. And, and there are very influential people who have since then backed his COP presidency. You know, the uh, US special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, he is, you know, a very um, ardent defender of, of Al Jabba's COP28 presidency. I think he was one, sure of, is. one of the first first people to defend that position, described Al Jabba as a terrific choice for the COP president. They have um, garnered a very close relationship over the last couple of years. Um, and just on your point about people uh, working on COP28, working from uh, Adnoc headquarters, I think there's many people who believe that the fossil fuel industry should be at the table um, at these sorts. And if there is going to be meaningful change, that they need to be brought along with it. I think there is then there is then a difference between being at the table and being at the head of the table, which is what appears to be the situation now. Um, Al Jabba obviously is is presiding over these talks uh, and maintains his role as as Adnoc CEO, despite calls for him to step down from that position during the talks. Um, and so I think it has really taken it to a different level. It would be naive to think that the fossil fuel industry hasn't influenced COPs in the past. But I think, you know, COP28 really seems to have taken it to a, to a different level.
Well, I guess that's why I'm feeling very cynical about this, because you're right. Of course, fossil fuel industries deserve a seat at the table. But does the seat at the table include getting to write the menu and controlling what comes out of the kitchen? I mean, according to the Energy Information Administration and the International Energy Agency, only 2% of the UAE's energy mix, as you know, was taken from renewables and nuclear by 2021. Master, the, the zero output a car-free city, of course, has slowed on its progress. They've scaled back the size the city would be. It was supposed to be car-free, and now they're saying, well, no, now you can have cars there. It, it, it's, it's hard to not think that our friends at the UAE are just talking a really good game about climate change and trying to make all the big oil money they can make while they do it. I think that's right. I think that's one of uh, another one of the questions that we were looking to answer is that, you know, the UAE has really taught the talk, um, and, and Mastar was you know, to give it all its credit, when it first launched in 2006, it, it was quite a, um, you know, quite a turning point. It, I remember, yeah. It was supposed yeah. to be a signal that, that the UAE was was turning away from oil and starting to prepare for, mm-hmm. for a world that would no longer be dependent on fossil fuels. They I were going to show us. The problem is that they, yeah, exactly. I think part of the problem was is that they make these promises that are so far in the future that it's actually quite difficult to hold them to account on on that stuff because they're saying look by this time we'll we will do this and, and i think that that really like you mentioned the with uh Mastar city they said for a long time that this was going to be this incredible uh eco utopia and and they largely haven't delivered on the promises that they they were going to make on that so i think currently um you know it was supposed to be six square kilometers it currently stands around two square kilometers about half the amount of the investment that they promised um the kind of car free transport system has been scaled back and, and so and that really speaks to some of the stuff that we see with adnoc now today as well yeah. so adnoc has plans to be you know net zero in its operations by 2045 they recently mm-hmm. brought that forward from the 2050 target but actually, if you look at what ADNOC is doing now, which is in the short term actually increasing production capacity and bringing forward production capacity targets from 2030 to 2027, so actually not only ramping up, but ramping up quicker than they said they were going to ramp up, I think it just, you know, you really have to look at what's what's happening now versus the promises that they're making that, that they yeah. can't necessarily stick to. Well, based on everything that you've documented, it sounds like their promises now are just a lot of spin. I mean, they've bragged about how they're one of the least carbon intensive oil and gas companies in the world, which is like saying you're one of the most, I don't know, polite muggers in the world. I mean, but their whole plan and these numbers they're throwing out uh, to show how committed they are to the cause it seems like it's all talk. I mean, their plans depend heavily on carbon capture. Is that something they're actually serious about? I mean, I mean, they say that they are. I, I know that a number of experts are concerned about depending too much on technology, particularly carbon capture, which, um, you know, has not been proven at a widespread commercial scale so far. So I think, you know, betting the future on something that isn't yet guaranteeing to, to save us from this crisis, I think, feels like a highly risky strategy. And, and yeah. of course, with carbon capture, it 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 allows a certain number of fossil fuels to continue to be burnt, um, which, of yeah. course, like to a company like Adnoc, whose um, revenue depends on oil and gas sales, that is a hugely attractive um, solution to the problem versus a complete phase out of fossil fuels that you know the UN Secretary General, for example, has called for. 
And again, this was already very controversial before these leaked documents came out. Um, my understanding is that these these documents included talking points for the 15 countries that state that Adnoc wants to work with them to get their oil. I mean, they're really just there to drill baby drill under the guise of climate action. I, I, I what is what is um, their response been at COP28 to these revelations? Well, they we obviously contacted um, the COP twenty eight team prior to publication. We the, the documents had shown, um, and, and we'd seen evidence that basically the the COP twenty eight team were approaching ADNOC prior to these kind of bilateral meetings with foreign governments and collecting talking points and um, from them and including them in Al Jabba's briefings ahead of these meetings. We we also were able to confirm that. Uh, on at least one occasion, a, a country followed up um, with the kind of commercial interests that were raised during one meeting. Um, I also heard from a, another source who was um, aware of discussions uh, with another country that, that who, who claimed that the ADNOT business interests had been raised in that meeting as well. Obviously, wow. when we when we went <laughs> to the COP28 team, they told us, um, although they didn't deny using bilateral meetings to raise commercial interests, they um, ultimately said, told us that, that private meetings are private and, and they don't comment on them. I think the great big question for us still is is actually to what extent exactly how many times did Al Jabba raise raise these talking points? We These are diplomatic meetings. It's incredibly difficult, um, even as an investor reporter who's been reporting on this issue now for the best part of a year, it's really difficult to get insight on on what actually goes on in in these diplomatic meetings for understandable reasons. Um, of course, since publication of the story, there has obviously been um, a much more strongly worded denial from Al Jabba. Um, his denial, from my point of view, contradicts the evidence that we've seen, um, mm-hmm. uh, the evidence that I've described previously. And so, I, you know, it's just one of those things that seems like it will continue to rumble on. And I shouldn't have to ask this, sir, but it is uh, not allowed, I'm guessing, to use the COP process to further a country's private business interests, right? It's just, it's not allowed under their own rules, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely correct. So the UNFCCC, um, which is the UN body which oversees the COP process, um, they uh, demand that the COP presidency is neutral and impartial. The COP president is not actually un- supposed to isn't supposed to represent the interests of the nation, never mind uh, kind of private commercial interests or, or not this case private, but state-owned commercial interests. Um, uh, but it's it's all kind of seems to be a symptom of this completely bizarre situation that we've ended up in, where not only is it the first time that a COP president has been a CEO it's, um, of an oil company, it's the first time a COP president has been the CEO of, of any company at all. So it, it really is a highly, highly unusual situation that we found ourselves in. And one last really quick question. John Kerry, I, I certainly have admired his work over the years on climate. He's been one of the most articulate spokespeople for the necessity of action on climate. And I respect the work he's done as climate envoy. Is this just part of his job to not say anything when this kind of outrageous shuck and jive is going on? I mean, there there are an, a number of very well-respected people who do believe that uh, that Al Jabba is the man for the job and and is can be this bridge between these two roles uh, between the climate people and the fossil fuel industry um i think really time will tell on whether that is a successful strategy or not this is not 
a cop that that can where inaction can afford to happen where you know the UNFCCC says that this is a real turning point uh, and that there needs to be some concrete outcomes out of this cop and you know maybe Al Jabba will be the person to deliver that and I think you know in a couple of weeks time we'll see story is completely bonkers. Uh, ben Stockton, I thank you so much for joining us and thank you for all the work you do with the Center for Climate Reporting. How can our listeners follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter and, uh, under my name, Ben Stockton, and you can also head to um, the Center for Climate Reporting's website at climate-reporting.org. Brilliant. Thank you for your reporting and thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. Thanks very much, John.